Genesis chapter 38, there's no real way to go transition from all of what I just finished talking about to this chapter, because this is kind of a wild chapter. You'll notice, of course, that we began a study recently in the life of Joseph, the son of Jacob. Joseph is a tremendous type of Jesus Christ uh, throughout his life. And chapter 37 was really the initial chapter to introduce us to the life of Joseph. Now we get to chapter 38 and it's not about Joseph. (laughs) It's about somebody else. It's about his brother Judah. And Judah's eventual daughter-in-law, Tamar. So we have this kind of an interruption here in our study. And yet it's very important in the, in the life of, of, of Joseph as well, as we'll see later on. But I've entitled this particular message, Taking a Slight Detour. And, and I don't want you to think of slight as you're thinking of already. You'll notice it's in quotation marks. If we thought about it in the way that we would normally think about it, it would be a slight detour, meaning just a little bit of a detour, a small detour away from a direction, maybe not much of a detour at all, but that's not what I'm using that word for here, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But to get a little bit of an idea, as this is really introductory to this chapter, because we're going to do the whole chapter next week, uh, but you'll see why it's so important to lay down this foundation. Uh, let's begin with verse 1. I'll give you the first 11 verses so you'll at least get a taste of what we're dealing with here in this chapter. It came to pass at that time. Now at that time is dealing with, of course, what has happened to Joseph. This is the connection with Joseph. Joseph is being carted off by the Ishmaelites who bought him from his brothers for 20 uh, uh, gold, uh, silver pieces. Uh, and, and so they're carrying him off to Egypt. So at this time, it says... It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira, or Hira, as more an English translation. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. And he married her and went in to her. So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. Uh, She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again. She's a very fruitful lady. Uh, she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chesib when she bore him. Uh, then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar, or Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. In other words, the Lord judged him. We don't know what the wickedness was. We'll talk about that next week. And Judah said to Onan, Go in to your brother's wife and marry her and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that uh, this heir would not be his, and it came to pass when he went in to his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground and, uh, lest he should give an heir to his brother. And uh, this is point I, rem- I keep remembering that I-, I need to tell you that we're dealing with something that's a little bit worse than PG-13, probably what used to be NC-17, or who knows what. Uh, but it's getting a little bit... All right, 
So anyway, we'll talk about that next week in a little more, neat, more detail. Uh, and the thing which he did displeased the Lord, therefore he killed him also. And then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. For he said, lest he also, die, uh, he also die like his brothers. And Tamar went and dwelt in her father's house. A very interesting detour sign. Detour, plan B ahead. Now, I just want to mention to you that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, plan A is always God's plan. Plan A is always God's plan. When we take a detour, plan B is usually our plan. Now, which one should we follow? <laughs> Keep that in mind as we deal with this issue with Judah. Detour signs are usually placed on roads under some sort of construction or repair so as to get us around and away from the problem areas. And, and while the detour may be inconvenient to us for a time, it usually serves to help us for safety's sake. But when we take detours of our own making, plan B, when we take detours of our own making, these tend to get us into more trouble than we should ever want to be in. And the case in point is found in this seemingly out-of-place chapter that focuses on Judah, the fourth son of Jacob. Now we might ask, what happened to Joseph? Why this interruption? Why is the story of Jacob and Joseph interrupted at this point? I mean, we thought we had a good start at this life of Joseph. Well, we can be sure that in this biblical book, the book of Genesis, this book that is marked by definitive purpose in each chapter and characterized by, by such a spiritual aim throughout, there is good reason for including such a sad and unsavory occurrence. Now, don't forget that one of the major goals of the book of Genesis is to record the origin and the development of the family of Jacob, the founder and the father of the twelve tribes of Israel. As a matter of fact, Jacob's name was changed by God to Israel. So remember then the first two verses at the onset of our study of the life of Joseph. Go back one chapter, 37, chapter 37, look at the first two verses. Now Jacob dwelt in the land. So the emphasis immediately is Jacob there. Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. And this is the history of Jacob. Now remember how we started there. As we started the life of Joseph. Because the first name right after that statement, the history, this is the history of Jacob, is Joseph. Being 17 years old, it goes on. And I, I don't give you the whole verse there, but you have it in your Bibles. But these tribes, which will be known as the Israelites eventually, would go down to Egypt as a large family and about 400 years later, they will leave Egypt as a large nation. And since the tribe of Judah is the royal tribe from which the Messiah would come, anything related to this son of Jacob, in other words, Judah, is essential to the account in Genesis. So it is an essential 
chapter. Because if we were to, first of all, take a, 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 a statement in Genesis 49, verse 10, uh, this statement about uh, Judah, there it says, the scepter, uh, Genesis 49, 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Uh, this is uh, Jacob actually speaking to his sons, and, and so this is what he says of Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Of course, that is saying that out of Judah actually will come the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we know that from the tribe of Judah, Jesus comes, because when you read the book of Revelation, it tells us there that Jesus is described as the lion of the tribe of Judah. So we think, well, here he's given this, uh, many, many chapters later, by the way, not where we are in chapter 38, but here many chapters later, He's told, out of you, see, until Shiloh comes, to him shall be the obedience. The scepter shall not depart. The scepter of a king. The Judah was the royal line. And Jesus comes forth as the king of kings and lord of lords. And then Revelation says he's, uh, Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So with all of that, we would say, wow, well, Judah's a really good guy. but not in chapter 38. But, but does that in some way reflect our lives as well? That if people were to know what our life was before we came to Jesus Christ, that we would almost have to say, well, yeah, okay, well, yeah, right now I'm a believer, but before... Uh... Is that your testimony? could be very much all of our testimony. Consider also that without this chapter, without this chapter 38, we would be wondering at seeing the names of Tamar and a, and, and a son named Perez in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Look at, look at Matthew 1 verse 3. It says, Judah begot Perez and Zerah. They were twins. Uh, Judah begot Perez and Tamar by, uh, Zerah by Tamar, who by the way will become his daughter-in-law here, or, or did in the first 11 verses of the text. And Perez goes on, begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram. You go from Perez all the way down that genealogical line, you get to Boaz, who leads you to Jesse, who leads you to David, and David, we know then, is whom? He's the king. The royal line. And out of David comes Jesus. Perez was an ancestor of Boaz and eventually King David, and therefore an ancestor of Jesus Christ, called the son of David in the very first verse of Matthew chapter 1. So now this chapter that we're studying, more than just historically, this chapter has practical value for us as well. For what we learn in chapter 38 is that there is a tremendous danger for God's people when dwelling in the land of the Canaanites. But then again, you can say, there is a danger of God's people when dwelling in the land of the Babylonians, or dwelling in the land of Egypt, or dwelling wherever they, uh, wherever they are, because all of these are typical of the world. Which actually reflects the time in which we live today. There is a danger for every one of God's children who live in this world today. The danger is to be tempted 
away from living for Christ and for uh, expressing the love of Christ through our lives and the expression of the love of Christ in our lives and embracing the things of the world. You see the danger. We're in that same danger today. The great temptation is to live like the neighbors and not like the children of God. That's the danger. Some of this obviously points back to Jacob, of course, as I'll mention in just a moment. But the focus has now turned to Judah. Now, back in September of this past year, I, I actually did a study as going through the book of, of Genesis. I did a study entitled Taking Costly Detours. Taking Costly Detours, which focused attention on Jacob's journey away from where the Lord wanted him to settle and that detour led to his daughter's violation and his son's retribution against the men of Shechem. But as we've been learning quite a bit in the book of Genesis, what goes around comes around. Biblically, you will reap what you sow. Now Judah, the fourth son of Jacob, takes what I call a slight detour. And you might think I mean that Judah might have taken this small variation of his, off of his intended path by a tiny degree or maybe a few little degrees. But let me explain what I mean by slight. Because I don't mean slight as an adjective. If you're an English teacher here today, you can check me out on this. I, I hope I did my research. I used to teach English too, so hope I got it right. But I don't mean slight as an adjective. A slight detour. I'm using the definition of slight here. That's why I had it in quotation marks. As a transitive verb. Now, don't worry. I know you're not in English class and you're not going to get tested on this. But a transitive verb, very simply, is an action verb that uh, has an object to its action. Okay, that's pretty much a transitive verb. Kind of, sort of. So, here's the definition of flight as a verb. Ready? First of all, it is to treat as of small importance or to make light of. To treat as of slight importance, or small importance, I should say, and make light of. The second definition for slight is as a verb is to treat with discourteous or disrespectful reserve or inattention. And lastly, and and just the first part of this, it's to do negligently or thoughtlessly. To do negligently or thoughtlessly. And so when you think of what Judah did, his detour reveals that he was slighting someone or something. Judah's detour reveals that he treated as of a small importance and made light of his father's God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He slighted his father's God. He did not follow his father's God. Secondly, he also treated as of small importance and made light of their command not to marry a Canaanite woman. It was very clear that that commandment was given to Abraham to teach Isaac, and Isaac was given the command to teach Jacob, and Jacob was given that command to make sure that his sons also 
would not marry a Canaanite woman. This is why Isaac was sent all the way back to the land of Abraham. Back in Ur of the Chaldees. And why Jacob also was sent. But Judah? Thirdly, he treated with discourteous or disrespectful reserve or inattention the custom and eventual law of leveret marriage by now, uh, by not allowing his third son to take Tamar and to bear children to continue the father's, or I'm sorry, the first son's name, as well as to respect Tamar's faithfulness to remain in his family. We're going to deal with all of that next time. But that's what he did. He treated with discourteous or disrespectful reserve or inattention that custom and law of leveret marriage. We'll talk about that again. Next time. And then Judah did negligently and thoughtlessly seek out, as the later story in this chapter, he, he negligently and thoughtlessly seeks out a prostitute who would eventually actually be Tamar herself. And that's the account we're getting into. Judah slighted his father's gods, or his father's God. He slighted his own God. He disrespected the law that was given to his father and to himself of marrying a Canaanite woman. And he was negligent and thoughtless in his actions with Tamar. So in this detour Judah slighted everything that pertained to the Lord and to his family. He slighted them. Now we get an understanding of what it means to slight. We begin at least to understand all of this because of Judah's separation. Judah's separation. Let's look at that in verse 1. This is really our focus today. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Now, I, I can tell you this. He could have separated from his brothers and gone in the direction of his father Jacob and said, you know what? Things are not right with my brothers. Instead, he goes kind of in a different direction. He goes away from his brothers, yes, and he separates from them, but instead he goes to a place where he meets up with a Canaanite, an Adulamite, whose name is Hira. And as we saw in the previous chapter, Joseph's brothers seem united in their evil and their wickedness against Joseph, but, the, but that unity soon dissolved. And, and Judah, the, the one who urged that Joseph be sold instead of being killed, well, he departed from his brothers and he went out on his own. Both Judah and Reuben, by the way, if you remember, seem to have had a brief crisis of conscience. The brothers talked about killing Joseph, and Reuben said, no, 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 you know, we, we ought not to kill him. Let's put him in, a, let's put him in that hole. Let's put him in that, in, in that cistern, in that well. Later on, Judah said, well, you know, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him. But there's a crisis. 
inside of both of them. But just because they had a brief crisis of conscience doesn't mean that they ran back to their father in repentance or ran looking to save Joseph. They didn't do that. They had a brief bout with their crisis of guilt. And Judah is singled out here for us to see the weight of that. Because how many of us have taken our guilt to the point of, 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 of being just short of a resolution with that guilt and then we run away? A lot of commentators call Judah here a, a coward for running the way that he did. From what he had suggested and from his brother who was eventually sold. How many of us take our guilt to a point where we, we are close to resolving this issue, but we stop? And then we go back in, in essence, toward ourselves. And we bear this weight of guilt with us. Maybe we cover it up with our countenance, but it weighs inside of us. He separated from his brothers. Not so much because of a spiritual revelation or epiphany, but just because of his guilt. That phrase in our text that came to pass at that time, the time of this chapter, as I said, is in reference to the brothers' heartlessness and their malice toward Joseph, which resulted in Joseph being sold and eventually going into slavery and into other hard times in the land of Egypt. This chapter itself more than likely takes place during the time which is approximately 15 years of time from the time that he's sold into the time that he's taken into Potiphar's house and then from Potiphar's house through the issue with Potiphar's wife into the prison house in Egypt. About 15 years all the way to the end of that section. This is the time frame of Judah's Lapse. Which brings us to a significant and dramatic contrast between Judah and Joseph. Because we will learn in the next chapter that, that Joseph, and that is chapter 39, that Joseph refused to compromise himself with Potiphar's wife, while in this chapter 38, Judah would casually sleep with a strange woman that he thought was a prostitute, ended up being his daughter-in-law. What a contrast. That contrast is there for us to realize and to see. Which way are we going to choose? To compromise what we know to be what is right or to do what is right? We will also see a continued sowing and reaping in the family because of deception. Case in point. Jacob, by the way, going back a little bit, Jacob used a garment to deceive his father Isaac. Remember that? 
He used a garment that he put on his arms. So he would say, you know, kind of a hairy piece of garment. But, you know, it was, it was like to say to his father Isaac, no, it's me, Esau. Yeah, I don't know. His father was blind, you know. So he said, oh, feel my arm, you know. So he said, okay. Well, see, he deceived him with a garment. And then Judah and his brothers used the garment to deceive Jacob. The garment which was the robe of, of Joseph. That they took and they and then they put blood on it, goat's blood, and then they took it to their father. Is 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 this your son's robe? And and the father said, Oh yes, it is. It's his robe. I, uh, animals attacked him and killed him. And now, in this chapter, verse fourteen, Tamar will use a garment to deceive Judah. She has been wearing the clothing of mourning because of her husband's deaths and because the third son was not given to her to bear a son for her first husband. And she wanted to remain faithful because she now was under Judah's protection. Judah doesn't protect her. We'll see that next week. But the point is that he's deceived by her with a garment. What goes around comes around. You reap what you sow. Joseph stood faithful in a strange land. Egypt. Judah floundered in his homeland, which at that time was Canaan. And yet both of these men were the recipients of the two parts of the Abrahamic birthright, but we'll talk more about that later. Let's just consider the cause of of Judah's separation. We've already kind of talked about it, but I'll just kind of review it very quickly before we go on. Judah, it says, departed from his brothers. I've already mentioned his guilt, but as to why Judah decided to separate from his brothers, we were just left to, to mere conjecture. But now, we'd all agree that sin does not foster good relationships, right? Wouldn't we agree with that? Sin does not foster good relationships. Well, Judah's brothers were cruel. I mean, they were dishonest in the way they treated Joseph. And that was their character. And they would certainly be that way with each other if left to their suspicions. Can you imagine now Judah saying, okay, now we were about to kill our brother. Uh, we were about to put him in a well. Uh, and now we sold him. And, uh, the, and, 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 you know, I didn't feel good about that. So if I kind of disagree with these guys, I think I'm going to be left out in the, you know, uh, in the elements here. So maybe I better just say, you know what, guys, I'm going to go out on my own. Then trust his own brothers. The only problem is he didn't go in the right direction. He truly went on his own and followed plan B of the detour. Plan B being his own plan. But there's either God's plan or, or, or your own plan. And it doesn't matter if somebody else tells you, listen, you ought to go this way and you ought to go that way, or you just decide yourself. But if you're not going down God's plan, then any other plan is plan B. And you know what B stands for? Bad. 
Or if you follow it, it stands for bozo. I just want to see if you're awake. Okay. But whatever the cause, this led Judah to the companion of his separation. The companion of his separation. We're never really quite alone when we take our own plan. We, we want someone to say, well, you know what, you did okay. I mean, you know, all that stuff about the Bible and God and ugh, Jesus and the cross. I mean, it probably sounds good and stuff on Sunday, but, you know, the rest of the week is yours. We always want a companion to our sin. He visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. Still in verse 1. Judah made a friend and a companion from among those where he moved when he left his brothers. And the companionship of the unsaved, listen carefully, the companionship of the unsaved seems for the better after contemplating the behavior of his own brethren who should have known better. (laughs) Sometimes the world seems better because of all of those hypocritical Christians. Sorry. Five o'clock shadow at 12.20. But what we will find out is that Hira will become Judah's evil genius. You ever seen those commercials where they have some guy that's got this conflict where he's got an angel on one ear and a, and a devil on the other, right? Most of the time people listen to the devil. Here's Hira. What we know about Hira and what we'll learn as we go through the whole of the chapter is, first of all, he becomes Judah's acquaintance. Becomes Judah's acquaintance. Then later on we realize that he becomes Judah's associate. But the progression leads to this. He becomes Judah's accomplice. We will see that in this chapter, chapter 38. This, of course, brings to mind the admonitions of Scripture about proper and godly separation because in reality, we as believers in Jesus Christ are called to be separate. We're called to be separate from the world. Even though we are in the world, we are not of the world. That's Scripture. We are in the world, but not of the world. We were of the world, And we were of our father, as Jesus put it, we were of our father, the devil, and doing his devices and doing all the things that he wanted us to do then, though we wouldn't have admitted it that way because we didn't say, well, I wasn't listening to the voice of the devil, but but in reality, that's what the Scriptures teach us. But we are called to be separate. Remember this, that in the New Testament and the Old Testament, we are given one command. Peter, quoting from the book of Leviticus, tells us, you, uh, he's uh, quoting the Lord himself, you are to be holy as I am holy. Be ye holy as I am holy. Holy, holiness, saint, 
sanctify, sanctification, all of these words tie into this one thought of being set apart for God and being set apart from the world. Being set apart from the world and set apart unto God. That's separation that we all are to go through as believers in Jesus Christ. So as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Folks, and we all know this, a lot of times that's applied to what? Marriage. Premarriage. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And that really does apply to the preparations for marriage. But it also speaks in general to all of the fellowships that we may have in this life. Don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. What does that mean? If you read Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30, you hear those great words that I, I quote from all the time. Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The yoke was this wooden piece of of furniture that uh, was used in agriculture. As you place that yoke on beasts of burden, whatever they might have been, cows or, you know, yaks or whatever. But anyway, there was always a part of the yoke which was for a larger animal, the lead animal, the mature animal, and you would yoke a smaller animal that needed to learn to grow and to, be, to mature, and this big animal would take and, and pull the younger animal to teach him and to cause him to grow into the you know, agricultural things that they had to do. And so Jesus uses that example of the yoke, said we are to be yoked to Jesus Christ. So Paul says don't be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. I think there's a tremendous contrast here that we should see. He goes on to say, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? If you're yoked to Jesus, you're not going to want to do anything that's lawless. So think about this. What fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? It's a rhetorical question. You have only one answer. What is it? None. There's no fellowship between righteousness and lawlessness. And what communion has light with darkness? None. You walk into a dark room, it's pretty dark. You can't see, there's no windows. But you find a switch on the wall and you turn it on. All of a sudden the light goes on and what? The darkness is gone. And I'm not talking about, you know, nowadays, you see, I bought this dimmer switch for my house so I could turn it down and, you know, do whatever I do, you know. No, no, I'm just talking. Look, right down the middle, man, there's, there's light and there's darkness. You have darkness and there's light. I mean, this is spiritual talking. We're not talking about ambience. Okay. And what accord has Christ with Belial? Uh, Belial was a word that actually means worthlessness and actually is applied to the devil. I mean, what accord would Christ have with the devil? There's no accord. They don't meet someplace like. Honestly, I mean, the, the Mormon church teaches, you know, that, that Satan is, is Jesus' half-brother. I mean, where'd that come from? No, there's no accord between Christ and the enemy. Who is worthless, by the way. See, Jesus is full of worth because he 
can save, He can redeem, He can heal. Can the enemy? He doesn't save. He certainly doesn't redeem. And He certainly can't heal. Why? Because Christ is God and the devil is not. Are you scared of me or what? Okay, you can respond. I am a little bit animated right now. But what part has a believer with an unbeliever? When you think about it, we believe totally different. Think about the situation with the, with the world today. It wants to actually come into the church and change us. Oh, you shouldn't teach that. What's in the Bible? Oh, no, no, no. We, you know, we've, we've progressed. We've become smarter now. You know, we've become more sophisticated in the world. You need to accept this and accept that. I'll accept one thing. The Bible tells me Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. God doesn't change. His Word doesn't change. So let's stand on that. What accord then do we have with an unbeliever? Nothing. What part? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? Do you notice who the temple of God is? For you are the temple of the living God. You believer. You're the temple of the living God. And as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. Now, some people take this way too far. We are in the world, but not of the world. But think about this. When you got saved, somebody reached out to you. Somebody loved you to tell you the truth about Jesus. Too many people today are legalistic and they say, you've got to dress a certain way and you've got to talk a certain way and you've got you to do things our way. You know, we, don't, we don't go and do well what the world does. You know. Well, you know, it's hard not to. I mean, we live in the world, but we're not of the world. See, that's what should dictate for us, you know, what we do. We're in the world, but not of the world. So we know then there are certain things that we don't do with the world, but we live in the world and we shop in the world, right? So we got to shop with wisdom and we got and, and whatever we do and wherever we go, we have to do that with the wisdom of God. Is, is this is, is this getting to you? I mean, are we understanding now the importance of this separation? Notice verse eighteen: I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Oh, listen, we we've, we've touched upon. Uh, well, actually, before we get on to First John, let's go to Second Corinthians 11, because there's two verses there I want you to see. It says, But I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So this is the danger. This is the danger of not being separate unto the Lord and separate from the world. The danger is that the devil is always wanting to deceive by his craftiness, just as he deceived Eve in the garden. His desire is to keep us away from the simplicity of Christ, which is what we just learned, to be separate from the world and separated unto God. And so in verse 4 it says, For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it, and my fear is that in this world today, too many people in the church, in, in, in the overall general sense of what the church is, have actually put up with that false gospel, with a false spirit. Because when you set aside the Word of God and 
don't consider to be as important as it really should be to us, then you've just opened the door to accept fellowship with the world. Why is it then that in the emerging church, think about this for just a moment, in the emerging church, we've got to find some good things in Buddhism and Hinduism and in, and, and in yoga and all of these other issues that are totally separate from the Word of God, totally separate from the way that a believer in Jesus Christ should live. As the Scriptures teach us, you see. But now there's all of that stuff in churches. Because you've set aside the Word of God. You've set aside the truth. You've set aside the standard that God says never changes. Yes, it's going to be hard for us to be Christians in the 21st century. But thank God Jesus said, I'm coming again. And I'm coming for you. Are we getting it? All right. Now let's look. Whoa, what happened there? Give me back. Give me back. Can you give me back? Can you give me back? Because I really messed up. I pressed the wrong button. Give me back all the way down to the end. Can you do that? Down to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John 2. Woo! Can you take me to 1 John 2? Whee! This is review. Test afterwards. Do not love the world. My turn, my turn. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's pretty clear. I know that I've said that a couple weeks ago. This is not a recording. What kind of sort? But, but there it is again. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Pretty clear. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, those three things that were found in the garden, the deceptions of the enemy, is not of the world, but is of the, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. He who does the will of God abides forever. I'm going to leave you, well, okay. One very important verse in James chapter 4. I'm I'm setting you up for this because I want you to know that the words that James uses are strong words. He's not talking to the world. He's not talking to unbelievers. He's speaking actually and writing to believers. Are you ready? This is what he says in verse 4 of chapter 4. He calls them adulterers and adulteresses in the spiritual sense. And James was one of the earlier books of the New Testament. Therefore, even early on in the church, there was this compromise. And he says, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity or hostility with God? Do you not know? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Think now about the person of Judah who had grown up in the life of his father Jacob on his lap, hearing Jacob talk about the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of saying, this is the God that we must follow. This is the God that we must choose to follow. This is the God that we must declare. 
But now he's in the world. I don't want to give the impression, by the way, that we're done with this story. I mean, this is only the backdrop, as well as the much-needed introduction to a story that may not be told a lot because of its content, but has great significance not only to the history of Israel, but all of God's people as well. Generally speaking, the story of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis should always remind us of God's grace and His sovereignty in the account of mankind. Grace is what makes sense of it all for us. We haven't seen it much today, but we sang about it. We sang about His grace. And I have to tell you, it is amazing, the grace of God. Because what we will find out in the chapter to come that there is a part of Judah in all of us. There is a part of Judah in all of us. Not all of it, but just the attitude and the actions. And yet if there, were no, if there was no hope, we would all be in poor, pretty bad shape. Grace. Amazing grace. God's grace is greater than anything. His mercies are greater than anything. Let me close with two things. These thoughts and the Scriptures. None of those who play a part in this drama, both men and women, were perfect. None of them were perfect, but I'm in a room with a bunch of imperfect people as well. None of us are perfect either. Many were deliberately disobedient in this story. And yet in the grand scheme of things, the Lord used them to accomplish His purposes. Now, that doesn't mean that the Lord approved of their sinfulness because their sins were ultimately revealed and judged. But it does mean that God can take the weak things of this world and accomplish and complete His very purposes, all which are good. And folks, we have to remember everything that God does is good. You might argue and say, but God, why did you allow this to happen? Why did you take this person from me? Why did you put this person in such such, uh, harmful uh, diseases? Why, why, why? But have you learned that we need to follow through with God? Because all things work together for good. We haven't yet seen the whole picture yet. But everything that God does is good. Everything. When He created the heavens and the earth in six days, the one constant throughout was that it said what God did was good. What God did was good. And so what He does is good to us. But think about who He calls and whom He chooses. In this passage, and we're going to close with this because of time, 1 Corinthians 1.26-31, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God 
has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. You know, some of us might think we're pretty strong. You sometimes think God, that we're strong, God is stronger. Some of us think we're pretty wise, God's much wiser. Are we realizing who we are? And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. No flesh should glory. In God's presence. But of Him, you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption that as it is written, He who glories, let Him glory in the Lord. That wasn't Judah's testimony in chapter 38. That will be Judah's testimony. when he realizes what God has done. Let's give him glory. And let's give him praise.